Berlin has emerged as one of Europe's most vibrant capitals and one of its top tourist destinations. It's an exciting non-stop festival of style, substance, and constant change. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. In the early 1900s, Berlin was an avant-garde cultural capital of Cabaret and Marlene Dietrich. But then came Hitler. After a difficult 20th century, today's Berlin is proudly stepping up to become one of the world's leading cities. Since German reunification nearly 20 years ago, Berlin has gone on a building frenzy, wasting no time refashioning itself into Central Europe's powerhouse with an exciting new spirit. To help us keep pace with the upgrades, we'll be joined by Nigel Miro. Nigel's an American working as a tour guide in Berlin. He'll fill us in on how to best experience Berlin's impressive historical sites, its cutting-edge modern architecture, and its everyday amusements. With Nigel, we'll take your questions and share your stories in the hour ahead. Stay with us as we get up to speed on Berlin. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Berlin is a flashy, intense, mad ride of a city. It's constantly reinvesting in itself as it renews its role as one of Europe's leading capitals. Nigel Mural is an American who moved into Berlin, making it his home four years ago. Today, Nigel joins us on Travel with Rick Steves to help us take aim at this moving target of a city. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and let's go to Berlin. I've got with me a man who went to Berlin three and a half years ago and stayed there. Nigel Mural is a uh, one of many people that have moved into Berlin because it's sort of a happening place in Europe right now. Nigel, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Rick. Yeah, you moved to Berlin three and a half years ago, exactly. and uh, why did you stay there? Well, to be honest, to make a long story short, it was a girlfriend of mine who was living in Spain, and she had studied German growing up, and she had visited Berlin back actually about four years after the wall fell. And I uh, had loved it. I had great memories and wanted to go back and pictured Berlin as sort of the ideal place. Now, you know, it, people don't picture people dreaming of going to Berlin. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's got this image of bombed out and concrete True. and cold and, and Prussian, not only German, but Prussian. Prussian right. <laughs> you go to Berlin today and you've got these young, idealistic, creative, artistic people mm-hmm. that just are wide-eyed about Berlin. Definitely. What, what's, it's a different place. What's going on? It's just, I think part of the reason is the cost of living is so cheap compared to many European capitals. And uh, it really attracts this um, artistic flair to it that people feel like they can open a gallery without much money. They can provide, you know, paintings. They can write on things. And there's uh, an outlet for their work because a lot of people are not just interested in participating in the art, but also viewing it, hearing it. And therefore, I think it creates a great environment in Berlin because people don't have to have these full-time jobs. So it's sort of a cutting-edge destination. Yeah, definitely. definitely. I mean, you've got creative areas in in different great cities. New York's got their areas that were bohemian because they were cheap, and then the artistic community moved in, and then they become chic. Uh, Of course, Paris has the Marais, which was so cheap that everybody moved there, and they were the artistic (laughs) ones that couldn't make any money otherwise. (laughs) And pretty soon, it's very uh, cutting-edge and trendy, and now it's quite expensive. And Berlin is in that stage right now where it was cheap because of the wall and the end of the wall mm-hmm. and, and everybody moving into East Berlin and so on. And, right. and it has a heritage, doesn't it? In the West, throughout the Cold War, mm-hmm. hippies and conscientious objectors of all the craziness of the modern world right. would go to Berlin. Right. Why? And it's interesting because not just that, but people even as famous as David Bowie um, or Iggy Pop, they would move there and, and sort of looking for this past. I think Perhaps part of it was the draw of the Nazi legacy, and not that they were looking for the evil side, but I think there was this mysterious sort of legacy of Berlin. That was during the Cold War, you're talking Exactly, about? afterwards, yeah. after the, obviously after the fall of uh, but, but Nazi. During the Cold but War, during the Cold War, you had people, like anybody, the equivalent of a person that would go to Canada during Vietnam from the United States. Exactly. In Germany, people would go to Berlin to get a draft deferral. Exactly, because they obviously weren't subjugated to the draft. Because the German government, when Berlin was an island of the freedom and west in the middle of the east, right. they had to entice people to go there. Right, exactly. And there was actually an increase in pay if people went there. There was this, what they called their jitters fee. And so they would get an extra, I think it was 15 to 20%. For a jitters fee? Yeah, just for living in West Berlin. Because? Because it was, many Tomorrow, people thought. you could be overrun by the red tanks. Yeah, if World War III was going to break out, they, they were, were the worried. first to go. Exactly. And that's why housing, the closer you got to the Berlin Wall, the cheaper it got. Now, in 1989, 1990, whatever, the Berlin Wall came down. Mm-hmm. What exactly. year do you say? The 1989. August, 1989. Yeah, exactly. November 9th, 1989. November 9th. Mm-hmm. And then you had, you know, the Turks, uh, I think, what, the third or fourth biggest Turkish city in the world is Berlin, right? There must right. be, how many Turks in Berlin? I'd say at least 500,000. 
500,000 Turks in yeah. Berlin. And uh, that's the last check, and I haven't checked for a while. Well, they, they got the cheap land. Well, so you push the Turks up against the wall. Right, that Kreuzberg. was the land that they moved into. Kreuzberg and then an area called Neukölln, so which is right next to Kreuzberg. Half a million Turks living in Kreuzberg pushed up against the wall. Suddenly, 1989, the wall comes down, right. and everybody's moving back to the middle. It's interesting, though, because Kreuzberg really was part of the middle. Obviously not in West Berlin. It was right up against the wall. But now that the wall is gone, Kreuzberg is very centralized. Well, that's the point. Yeah, and exactly. now they had this cheap land, which becomes the expensive land. Right. And Kreuzberg still is fairly reasonable compared to other areas. But um, the prices have definitely gone up. And it's still rather hip and cool and also multicultural because of the Turkish aspect. Now, you got it's an interesting challenge Europe has with its immigrants. I mean, Germans made this word gastarbeiter. Right, I mean, exactly. I think it's an international word now for guest worker. Right. You, you got too much money, you don't want to take your garbage out, hire somebody from a poor country to come in and do it for you. Right. That's what we do in the United States, right. to be honest. Mm-hmm. That's what they did in Germany. Ireland right now is importing poles. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Irish people talk about a, a Polish person like their new appliance. I got yeah. a great new pole. You know, it's just who's got the money and who's looking for work. Right. Well, of course, Germany had the money, and I guess uh, your great frontier for cheap labor was Turkey. And not just Turkey, though. Also, many people came from Spain, uh, also from Greece, from Italy. Yugoslavia. Exactly, exactly. But these groups actually left, and the Turks actually stayed. And so they ended up bringing over family members or raising families there. And little by little, at first the government tried to say, you know, here's some extra cash. If you want to go home, thank you, but we're done. Last time I went to Berlin, a a cabbie I used was uh, Turkish, and we were talking. And I asked him if he was a Berliner, if he considered himself a Berliner. And he said, well, after one day, John F. Kennedy said, ich bin ein Berliner. (laughs) I guess after 20 years, I can be a Berliner. And he really was proud to be a Berliner. And I get a feeling that the half million Turks in Berlin are actually part of the uh, social fabric and doing quite well. Definitely. I mean, they're not exactly integrated if you were to ask a German in that sense. Um, But they form, obviously, a big part of what goes on in the city. They're very an inescapable force in the sense of you'll see them everywhere and they participate. But I think the Germans would like it more if, in their eyes, there was more integration. But, of course, that comes to the issue of what's integration, but what's forcing you to give up customs of your own. And that's a big issue all around Europe. Is this diaspora where you're camping out in my economy because the land and the economy is better? Or are you melting in and becoming part of the culture? Right. And uh, that's a tough issue. Definitely, definitely. But I think the Turks seem to be less problematic for the Germans than, let's say, the, the Muslim minorities in Paris are for, for I would the say French. so. Yeah, I would say so as well. Why I do think, you think that is? I think that they've just had a long sort of relationship that began by Germans needing Turkish help in the beginning rather than a former colony, for example. Um, and, I see. And seeing this sort of obviously dominant power oppressing you. And Germans like Turkish food. Oh, they do, actually. And they like Turkish vacations and Turkish coastlines. Is that right? Yeah, so there's a, a little, it goes back and forth. I love to go to the uh, Doner Kebab place or whatever. Yeah, definitely, and, definitely. And if you're wondering how are you going to manage with the uh, high euro and the low dollar, right. Doner Kebab. Yeah, Doner Kebab's a good way to go. You <laughs> do Doner Kebab? I do, probably too often. When I'm traveling, it's Doner Kebab City, man. Anywhere in Europe, you can get a good Doner <laughs> Kebab true, for three euros. <laughs> All right, I'm talking with Nigel Mural. You work for a, a walking tour company in Berlin. Yeah, exactly. And so I did uh, walking tours around the city about three and a half hours. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number is 877-333-RICK or 877-333-7425. You can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. And Suzanne's on the phone from Orangevale, California. Hi, Suzanne. Hi. Thanks for your call. Thank you. We went to Berlin this past summer, and I just, what type of traditional Berlin food is there? Because we were in there, and there's a lot of things to do, but not actually any traditional food that we found. Good point. Thank you, Suzanne. So, Nigel, what, yeah. do you do for, what, do, what do Germans do? What do Berliners do to go out for traditional food? Well, one thing, actually, traditional food is more of a fast food basis in Berlin. It doesn't have the traditional sense that perhaps other regions have, but what it does have is like the currywurst. This is the currywurst that uh, we talk about that's basically a hot dog with curry sauce. That is the Berlin sort of dish. Now, I've I know noticed that. that. They've got these places called Schnell Imbiss, right? Exactly. Fast fast eat. Exactly. And um, besides that, you can also get the bouletten there. And the bouletten was actually taken from the French, but it's kind of a small meat patty that's packed with onions and other okay. sauces. So you go to your, uh, what do you call the hot dog again? Uh, currywurst. Currywurst. And there's a, a sort of a, a fine cuisine version of that. You've got different sauces and different oh, definitely. versions of that. Definitely. They have lots of different wurst in general. But I've been told the Germans tend to do their German cooking at home, and if they go out, they're going out for some other kind of cuisine. Especially Berliners. Definitely. I think that's very true. Because you've got great restaurants in Berlin now, especially yeah. in uh, Prince Lauenburg in the yeah, east. Yeah, definitely. Prince Lauenburg has an amazing right. amount of restaurants. Cuban restaurants, Mexican right. restaurants, right. Chinese restaurants. Yeah, especially on the street Castagne and Allee. 
And uh, that's actually a place where we stay, and it's, there's lots of great restaurants there. All right. And Lynn's on the phone in Eau Claire, uh, Wisconsin. Lynn? Yes. Did I pronounce your town correctly? Eau Claire. Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Thanks yes. for your call. What's on your mind? Thank you. Well, I'm a German teacher, and so I have been to Berlin, but not for a while. Um, and I know that Berlin is often recognized as a city which attracts people of many different nations to themselves become Berliners. And so I was wondering if you could tell me, in your opinion, which group or groups have recently had a noticeable influence on the city. Hmm. Actually, it was interesting. We were just talking about this. Hi, Lynn. This is Nigel. Hi. Uh, we were talking about the Turkish population there and the dominant role that they play. Um, and there's about a half a million Turks in the city. But just besides them, there are also, uh, according to a friend of mine who's from Moscow and living in Berlin, there are about 200,000 Russians there in Berlin. They play a large role as well as, obviously, you can imagine the bordering countries especially Poland. And so I think each one of these groups kind of play a role depending on the neighborhood of the area. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me what influence specifically the Russians have had that, that's noticeable? Hmm. Other than restaurants, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> there might be business going on behind the scenes that I don't know about. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, off the top of my head, uh, there's nothing in particular that is dominantly Russian. I mean, you can look at architecture. It's an interesting point, though. I bet you see a lot of Russian mafia coming into Europe with a lot of money to, to put somewhere legitimate. It's quite possible. I wouldn't necessarily be able to spot it on the street. But <laughs> Nigel has to go back to Berlin and live safely. <laughs> it's an interesting thing going on with this Russian mafia because I know towns in Europe that have actually had a rule that the Russians can no longer buy real estate in this town. Really? There's so much black money from Russia coming in and they got to just spend it somewhere. And other towns are taking the Russian money. Baden-Baden, the famous resort town yes, in Germany, definitely. it's becoming Russian-owned. Wow. And all the major hotels, Russian-owned. Mm-hmm. And that mayor, I understand, is particularly saying... Uh, it's money. Let's just take it. It's all Let's right. Not but, worry about but, it. Yeah. but other cities are saying, no, we're becoming uh, connected with something we don't want to right. be connected, and it's going to change the fabric of our town. Right. I'm talking with Nigel Mural, and we're talking about Berlin. You know, there's so much change going on in Europe now, and I find Berlin the fastest changing city anywhere. You've been there for nearly four years. Definitely. Yeah. How, how would you uh, sum up the change? What, what are people going to say? I think the best way to sum up the change is to look at Museum Island. And Museum Island is a place where, obviously, by the name itself, lots of museums are there. But it was also the home of the former royal palace. This was the Hohenzollern Palace from the Prussian days. This was blown up in 1950 uh, by the communist government. And they built this Palace of the Republic in its place. Now that was the home of the East German Parliament, which after the reunification was voted to be torn down. And during the Cold War, you go there and Mm -hmm. it's like the only place with a fancy restaurant. Right, exactly. The only (laughs) place with big chandeliers. And it was like the Germans could go there and pretend they were successful. They could, it was a showpiece thing. It was. Visitors would come in and they go, oh, this communism's not so bad. Right. But, but really go a mile further away and right. a different story. It was a palace for the people. Yeah, right. And so uh, now that that's been torn down, the big debate is what to put in this place. And they voted to put the old palace back there. But in the meantime, they put up a Kunsthalle, which just means basically art hall for contemporary art. And that's going to be built up right now. Big changes in Berlin. Definitely. Let's discuss what you want to know about Berlin and hear about your discoveries there as well. We're at 877-333-RICK. Radio at ricksteves.com is our email address. And you can post to our radio message board anytime online at ricksteves.com. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines. Their Advantage program can help you earn miles toward your next vacation. Details are at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number, 877-333-RICK. 
or 877-333-7425. Email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Today we're joined by Nigel Murrell, who's a friend and fellow tour guide from Berlin. Nigel, we were talking about Berlin is changing a lot. I was just there, and this new Hauptbahnhof is incredible. It is it's like the biggest train station in Europe now, isn't it? It's quite impressive, yeah. It is the biggest and the most modern. What do, what do Berliners think about it? Well, they were quite impressed in the beginning. There was a big party. I don't know if you saw in news clips, there were fireworks, and uh, hundreds of thousands of people came out. It was like, wow, it was like a rock star. <laughs> and so, uh, But the problem is there were actually some architectural problems in the very beginning, uh-huh. and then suddenly there was some finger-pointing going on, and now they fix things, and they're trying to get back on track. But this is so huge that major train lines come in at right angles at different levels. Definitely. It's definitely, the only, yeah. only European train station like that. And my whole life experience has been going to Berlin, and there's train stations all over the place, and you're going from here or there or here or there, and you never... Exactly. It's stressful because I don't know what train I'm going to be leaving from. Right. Of course, Westerners would always go to the Zubanhof because right. that happened to be in the uh, the American zone or the Western zone. Exactly. Um, now all of those are withering away and becoming like glorified subway stops as all trains are coming into the, what, they, what do they call it, a, a, trans, a distribution hub. Yeah. The, the transportation comes into Hauptbahnhof, the, the main train station, and from mm-hmm. there you catch one of the um, commuter trains to get out to different regions. Exactly. They're really pushing this, the shopping mall aspect of it. They are. They are. It's a bit intimidating when you walk in because you feel like you're on your way somewhere and then something catches your eye and you think, well, maybe I'll just pop in and have a quick peek. You know? It's devious, isn't it? <laughs> yes. and, and on Sunday, it's the only place. I mean, all the shops are open. Right, exactly. I think that's a precondition for yeah. having a shop at the Hop on Hop. It's where you shop on Sunday. Very true. There must be, I believe there's 70 or 80 shops there. Yeah, it sounds about right. <laughs> and now you step out and it was kind of in the middle of no man's land, but ahead of you, you see this pharaonic White House. Right. Is that the word pharaonic, like on the, on the scale of a pharaoh? Uh, the chancellery, is it called? Yeah, the chancellery, the uh, Kanzleramt. That's where the sort of White House is, where Angela Merkel is today. And uh, Berlin is called the washing machine. Have you heard that? No. Yeah. But now that you said it, I can, it looks like a <laughs> giant-scale washing machine. It does. It's a, a pretty striking. I find it a, just a glorious sight. I've never been inside. And it faces the new Reichstag building. Exactly. And I think that's a nice lineup where they've got the new Kanzleramt or the Chancellor building. Right. And then they've got all this brand new architecture lining the river. And it leads all the way down to the Reichstag. This Reichstag to me is just almost emotional and beautiful. Its government was divided and the West government was in Bonn. Right. Uh, Germany is united. So the government goes back to Berlin and with the United Country. They had their Congress building or their Parliament building that was bombed out right. on the Berlin Wall for 50 years, just a blackened hulk. Right. That's where the last days of World War, the last day of World War II was fought, I think. Yeah, Russians the Battle of Berlin came down there. Imagine this, Russians against Nazis on the rooftop of their Parliament building. Yeah, and that's where that famous picture came in, right? With the oh, two Russian soldiers yeah. posing, yeah. Now, in good European style, they don't bulldoze the old building and build a new capital. They right. rent Innovate the historic one mm-hmm. and incorporate modern architectural elements, the glass dome on top. I think the neatest part about the glass dome is that Sir Lord Norman Foster, who was the architect behind that, wanted to build the dome again. There was an old dome in the sort of modern style back when it was first built in 1894, but he wanted it to be more symbolic. And I think the beauty behind his dome is that it shows transparency in government. And so it, that is the symbol of, the, of this, this glass dome. Definitely, definitely. There's a twin spiral ramp that goes up, and you can look down into the debating chamber of parliament. And the idea is if they ever forget who has the real power, they can look up and see the people looking down on them as if to remind them who voted you in. So the people have been, uh, they've learned, I think, from harsh lessons of history. Definitely. And yeah. they're going to keep an eye on their government in Germany. Yeah, I think that's very much the idea behind well, it. I, I think was, it works very well. I was up there on opening week. Yeah, I remember it, you told me that. It yeah. was incredible. I'll never forget this. Surrounded by teary-eyed Germans. Right. Man, I always know when you're surrounded by teary-eyed Germans, something <laughs> exceptional is going on here. Definitely. And for these people, I mean, most of them were old enough to remember the, the war, the, the, days after, the years after the war when Berlin was just in rubble. Right. And... For these people, I believe the opening of that new parliament building was a, sort of the emotional closing of, of the book on an ugly chapter mm-hmm. in the history of a great nation. And now they were united. No more communism, no more fascism. Looking into a new century with a unified government and a new capital building. Thrilling time it is, to be there. And I just feel that that's one reason I'm just a big fan of having people go to Berlin. Do you find that the Americans that you visit are interested in that? Or, or what, what do people have on their agenda when they come to Berlin from the United States? I think the Reichstag is one of the main things. Um, but you can't avoid, obviously, the Brandenburg Gate. I mean, that's such a symbol of not just reunified Berlin, but reunified Germany as well. And that's just another five-minute walk from the Reichstag. Exactly. So we're walking from the train station to the chancellery to the right. Reichstag to the Brandenburg Gate. It's also close there. It's amazing. There's this great lineup. And then from there on, you actually have the new Holocaust Memorial as well, which is very moving. Before that, you get to the American Embassy. Right, exactly. Now, tell is, me about that. Is there, you've been living there during this thing. There's been right. some discussion about the security necessary for an American embassy. Yeah, there was a big debate in the beginning because they, uh, the American Embassy actually asked the German government to basically move part of the road and cut out some of the Tiergarten, which is the major park right there. 
Um, there was some debate originally who owned the land, and finally they worked things out. So uh, just so I understand, we're we're looking at the Brandenburg Gate in mm-hmm. Paris Square, Pariser Platz, exactly. in front of Brandenburg Gate, and this is the historic center exactly. of Berlin. Right. And historically, the French Embassy and the American Embassy have been there. Right. And bombed British, out in the war. Exactly. And as a matter of principle, they wanted to put things back together the way it was. Right. Exactly. But everything else was built up in time. The American Embassy spot was the only thing left standing. Huh. And we owned that land. Well, that's a debate. All right. The German government said we sold it. We said we didn't. They oh. worked out a deal. But now, because of the state of the world, we have more security concerns than ever. Exactly. Consequently, they literally had to reroute, move a road. Yeah, they Why? did. Well, the thing was to provide enough of an area for barrier for protection. For car bombs. I assume so. Yeah, because yeah. there's a big uh, no man's land between roads and embassies these yeah, days. Yeah, exactly. What do Berliners think about this? Well, I have students. I'm also an English teacher there. And right. uh, this subject comes up. Uh, for discussion sometimes in class. And they kind of just roll their eyes at it. It's one of those things that they're not going to fight about it and they're not going to lose their breath over it. But at the same time, they do kind of roll their eyes. I guess that's what Europeans have to do. They can't fight it. They just kind of yeah, roll their eyes. It's just and, kind of an acceptance. You know, that's like, there's our friends, the Americans. <laughs> well, they're good guys, but they need right. to do this stuff, you know? Right. Have you been to the Jewish Museum in Berlin? That's the building that's shaped like a, a exploded thunderbolt. Star of David. Yeah. Exploded Star of David. Is yeah. that what that is? That's the idea behind it. I love the architecture yeah. of Berlin. Yeah. Daniel Liebeskind was behind that. That is a brilliant museum. Yeah, I agree. And they I create agree. a, it's a psychological trip, an emotional thing. They create this yeah. atmosphere everywhere you go. It's a very powerful experience to be inside it. I think in Berlin more than anywhere, it's important to understand the goal or the agenda of the architecture and the history and what they're trying to teach because there's so much heavy history. There is, there is. And there's so much brilliant ways to display it. This, It's not a Holocaust memorial. It's literally what? The Memorial to the Murdered Jews. Jews. They just call a spade a spade here. Yeah, that is its official title. The Memorial? To the Murdered Jews of Europe. That's quite a striking new uh, thing. On the, it's not doesn't stick up enough to be on the skyline, but it's no, a, it's but the major piece of real estate there behind the exactly, American embassy. Exactly, it opened in May two thousand five. Um, there was a couple of pieces of controversy behind it. One of them being why build a site here because there were no atrocities committed here. But as you mentioned, it's right in the heart of the city center. In fact, it's along one of the most traveled paths there is in Berlin. So people have to see it. Exactly. That's well, the that whole point. Well, that was probably in the thinking then. Well, I think the Jewish community liked this it's idea. It's just in their face. Don't park me outside of town in exactly. some little park, but exactly. put me right there where they have to drive by me on their way to work every day. Exactly. The politicians have to drive by that to get to the Reichstag. Exactly. And you also see a lot of people going from the Brandenburg Gate to Potsdamer Platz, hmm. which is the other major attraction. And so I think it draws people in. It's also very inviting. It is. And at the other hand, you've got these neo-Nazi elements. And this monument, if you can envision it, it's like hundreds and hundreds of giant concrete blocks of different, right. like a bunch 2000, of different Legos. Yeah, 711 to be exact. 711. 2711. 2711. And they're surfaced with a kind of finish that is uh, graffiti resistant, exactly. I understand. Exactly. But do you know the story behind that? No. Yeah. So, but halfway through it was discovered that the company applying the chemical, the anti-graffiti chemical, used to belong to a daughter company. And I don't know the exact relationship, but there was a relationship in World War II. Oh, no, I think I know where you're going. Yeah, that this daughter company was responsible for delivering Cyclone B to the gas chambers. Oh, my goodness. And so you can imagine the relationship sort of rippling through time. Obviously, people were outraged. And um, basically, the designer behind it, Eisenman, he said, you know, of course, we can tear up every stone and start Mm -hmm. over. This was one, one suggestion. But he said, we have to kind of look at this in a certain way of where do we draw the line? Mm -hmm. And if we say, therefore, obviously this firm cannot participate, then perhaps we should say anybody wearing uh, Adidas tennis shoes should not be allowed to enter because Adidas was part of the war machine building boots. Anybody using a product from Siemens, and the list goes on and on. So in the end, they allowed the company to finish, but the company did the job for free, hoping to obviously make some sort of amends. You are a good example of why when somebody goes to Berlin, they'd be wise to take a guided tour. I think so. I think so. I think you really get these stories if you take a guided tour. And it's interesting when you go to Berlin nowadays, it's such a hot place for tourists and it's so complicated of a history and a, and a history people like. I mean, it's the place where people want to oh, get into the history. You know, it's fascinating stuff. You got all these competing entrepreneurial guerrilla, you could say guerrilla tour companies. <laughs> yes, you could call them that. <laughs> using a lot of expats like you yeah. who are well-educated and Definitely. can teach the story right. right. You got to get yourself a good guide and, and walk through here and, and you'll understand a lot more than if you just wander around. Uh, definitely. I mean, you have going on. many choices, too. So I definitely would recommend anybody go in there to take one of these tours. I'm talking with Nigel Mural, and we're looking at Berlin today. And we have Lisa, who's called us from Pickett, Arkansas. Hi, Lisa. Hi there. Thanks for your call. Yes. I was calling uh, regarding talking about the new construction that's going on uh, in Berlin. We were there about three and a half years ago, and of course we didn't get to see much of the Brandenburg Gate. But uh, I was just curious as to 
what historical places are now not accessible, and what is still under construction. Well, there are very few places right now. When I just left, I just came here about a week ago, um, that are inaccessible. Right now, the biggest construction site, though, as you know, obviously, much of Berlin is a construction site. Um, but right now, the focus is on Museum Island because, uh, as I mentioned earlier, they're building up this new artistic hall that will take the place of what will become the actual royal palace that they're going to rebuild. And so there's not really much to see there right now. So just to paint a picture here, we've got in the very historic heart of Berlin an island uh, where the river and a canal go around it or something like exactly. that. Exactly, two rivers are part around it. Now. And it was the home of the palace and the original old museums and the big cathedral. And then, of course, Berlin is separated, and you've got the eastern museums and the western museums. Actually, in the west, they're out in the suburbs, weren't they? What was Dahlem? Yeah, exactly, out in Dahlem or at Charlottenburg as so well. They have all these um, fine museums way out in the sticks, mm-hmm. and now Berlin's united again, and you've got to talk Dahlem and, and Charlottenburg to give up their art treasures. Right. And they move back into the center, and they've got this glorious vision. I mean, it would make Albert Speer proud, I've got to say. <laughs> this is the funny irony, or the weird irony, is Hitler <laughs> had these grandiose visions of Berlin, and his best buddy, Albert Speer, was right. an architect. And they, well, for their free time, I, I envisioned them sitting down and pouring over the charts and how they're going to rebuild Berlin after they win the war. Of course, yeah. it didn't work out for them. Right. But 50, 60, 70 years later, you've got Berlin being built on this mammoth scale. Right. And you've got all of these wonderful museums together in these glorious old neoclassical buildings Definitely. with this incredible German cathedral, the Deutsche Dome, the German cathedral. That's right. And as Nigel said, they tore down the Kaiser's palace and they built this big blocky neo-nothing communist <laughs> building for a palace of the people. And they hated that thing and they would have turned it down sooner, but it was riddled with asbestos. And now they're getting it down and they're going to build a, what, a facade of the palace? Well, that's what's going to be interesting is there's still a debate as to how much of the old royal palace they're going to build because it's going to depend on the money they have. And yeah. so right now, of course, they at least have the facade. They'll have a library, hopefully probably a museum, and then there's talk about a conference center. Point is, the wonderful Unterlinden uh, Boulevard from Brandenburg Gate down right. to the Museum Island is mm-hmm. going to be one of the glorious cultural centers of Europe. And Definitely. Nefertiti and the Great Egyptian Collection are there. You've mm-hmm. got all sorts of wonderful exhibits. Uh, there's also a new, the most powerful German history museum I've seen anywhere is in the, uh, what's right next to the... The, the actual uh, Deutsches Historisches Museum, yeah. the German history. that just opened about a year and a half ago. With the IMP stairway. Exactly, the IMP wing in the, in the background. That's a great museum. I think that's one of my favorite museums in the city, partly because it's brand new and I think all the the exhibits are really exciting. But if you walk in, first you have on the top floor, basically from day one, from back in their consideration of German history, all the way to the end of World War I. Now that's just the top floor. Now the bottom floor is 1919 until current day. So you can heavy imagine the focus. Stuff. Yeah, heavy and stuff. They, and they take a hard look at their own history, which they didn't do before. Sure. Hitler was almost not mentioned before. And now, right. I, I guess grandpa's gone and you can talk about it. <laughs> I think they're much more comfortable talking about it. You'll hear a lot of debates in the newspapers, on the radio, on the TV. It's a subject that doesn't really get old for most people. Of course, you'll have different groups that say, okay, enough with this. But yeah, because you can get fixated on it, and it's like, let's right. get beyond that. It's like the most popular site for Americans, I think, is Checkpoint Charlie. Right, exactly. And the, and the Europeans are kind of going, you know, that's kind of old news. Right. I mean, the wall fell 20 years ago. Right. But the Americans, as soon as they get there, where's Checkpoint Charlie? Charlie. <laughs> and it's filled with Americans, and I, I love it. I mean, because I grew up in the Cold War, right, and that, right. was, that was one war that we won. Yeah, I mean, knowing the stories behind Checkpoint Charlie, I think it's always fun to go visit. Even though you, know, you tell people, of course, this is a replica, and this is a replica but you get a very clear picture oh, yeah. as to how it used to be. And if you're old enough to remember going across Checkpoint Charlie yeah. during the Cold War like me, definitely, man, oh man, you got there in your tour bus and you're like nervous as can be and <laughs> everybody gets off and they, and they slide this mirror on wheels under the bus to see if yeah. there's anybody hanging onto the bottom right. of the bus right. to sneak out with you. Yeah. They know that you're through. Lots of exciting sightseeing in Berlin and if you're interested in World War II and, and Nazi history and so on, it's just even more poignant. Katie Kolwitz, do you know that museum? Yeah, Katie Kolwitz Museum. That's actually out in the West. Yeah. And uh, I don't think it's as visited as often as it used to be. It's a shame because it's a very pretty museum. Um, but because it's out in the West, you know, a lot of people, as you mentioned, go to Museum Island. I think mm-hmm. that's where the main focus is. And the German History Museum that I just mentioned is right next to Museum Island. And there is a Katie Kolwitz statue in the uh, Neuwache. Exactly, in the Neuwache. Exactly. That, was, that a, used to be a, a guardhouse, right, in communist times? Exactly. Back in the day, well, originally, at the very beginning, it was the old royal guardhouse. It felt like Red Square yeah. on Minster. <laughs> yeah. And after World War I, when the Kaiser abdicated, right, this was the Roman Emperor, the Roman Emperor, excuse me, the uh, German Emperor, then they turned it into a memorial. And this was during the Weimar Republic. Of course, when the Nazis came to power, it became a memorial for all the fallen Nazis, right, who were victims of those evil communists. Yeah. Then, of course, World War II was finished. The communists took over because that was East Berlin. It became a memorial to all those, obviously, evil Nazis and all the poor communists that died at their hands. Then, at the end of 1989, it became a memorial for all the victims of war and tyranny everywhere. That's an interesting thing these days, post-Cold War. 
they make memorials to the victims of fascism and right. whatever the literal phrase they use, but it means they don't just want to uh, remember the, the victims of Hitler. They want to remember the soldiers that fought for Hitler who were victimized by Hitler's uh, True. effective uh, tyranny. And But there's also a point here that I think was quite controversial when they first renamed it and redid it. And the fact was that they're saying, are you honoring people then that died in the concentration camps as well as the guards who may have been in control, who died as well? And of course the government said, no, of course not. No, no. So now as you approach the Neuwache, there'll be a plaque that lays out specifically who it is for. And it uh, clearly leaves out those groups that, of course, would not be included, that we so would never want to see. Very sensitive Def- in- information as Germany is dealing with a hard recent past. Right, definitely. Fritz emailed us from Philadelphia, and Fritz writes, Of the major cities in Europe, to me, Berlin seems the coldest, kind of soulless and spent from its history. What do you think? Yeah, I think that Berliners get a bad reputation, to be honest. I think you'll hear that a lot. Um, part of the reason is that Berlin's weather isn't always the best, and I know this seems very superficial, but you'd be amazed at what sunny weather, the effect that it Mm. has on Berliners. And uh, you'll see a big change in pace when the leaves start changing, obviously, and start coming back and the sun starts coming out. Um, But I think you have to give it time. I think it's a little bit like New York in the sense of it has a reputation. People almost expect that when they go there. But it's a very exciting place, and uh, especially the younger Berliners, I think, are very social and outgoing. And uh, we'll definitely give you a chance to chat. You know, it's easy to find the architecture is a little bit makes you feel small, but uh, but you got to yeah. understand the basic social structure of the architecture, right? You've got these big, towering apartment blocks that right. have courtyards, and then you go through one courtyard, and then there's another square courtyard building behind it exactly. and behind it, exactly. and they all have light because they all face these squares, and you go further from the street into deeper and deeper squares. Right. And so the thing was, in the beginning, if you look at old pictures of Berlin, especially aerial photos, you'll see that these uh, courtyards were enclosed. And of course, people living at the bottom didn't get much light because they obviously didn't get sunlight directly inside the courtyard. Now, many of these buildings, the wings were blown off during the war, or if they were damaged, the government decided to take them down and not rebuild the wing to allow in more natural sunlight. But if you are within a courtyard that's enclosed during the winter then it's pretty dark and pretty cold. And I think that could In the winter. <laughs> See, I, I, the winter. I don't go to Berlin in the winter. I got to say. That's a smart I, move. <laughs> I, like, I like Paris. I like even London. Right. I like right. Rome and Venice in the winter. I love Berlin in the summer when Definitely. the Lustgarten is filled with people sunbathing right yeah. in downtown. It's, it's a great. great scene. And not just that, but the uh, open air cinemas as well. That's another fun thing to do in the summer. It's a vibrant place. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Nigel Miro about Berlin. Eight seven seven three 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 rick is our phone number, and you can continue our conversation online in the radio message board at our website. Look for the radio corner at ricksteves.com. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Nigel Merrill, who's a tour guide in Berlin. We're talking about Berlin. Our phone number, 877-333-RICK, 877-333-7425. You can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. And Megan's on the line in Long Island, New York. Hi, Megan. Hi, how are you? We're good. What's on your mind? Well, I'm going to Berlin, and I've been doing a little research, and I found that a lot of the attractions in Berlin are very much focused on the history, the tragic history that's happened in that city and in that country. And what I'm trying to find something a little bit more heart, uh, lighthearted that maybe uh, a right. group, a small group of people could go to. That's a great question. So all the t- history is kind of heavy, understandably. But what, it's what's very a light? Heavy. What's a light? Yeah. Um, to be honest, with, there's a new museum that uh, is. I know you're going to laugh that I think this is light, but it's for the GDR, East Germany. And I say it's light because it's very interactive, it's very fun, and it doesn't focus on things like the Stasi, which was the secret police. It actually focuses on everyday life of how things were in East Germany. And you get to kind of learn how people bought uh, things at the supermarket, or how they played games, or the films they watched. 
And uh, it's very, a very lighthearted for a museum that focuses on, obviously. That's the DDR Museum? Exactly. Is that the one right on the river exactly. at the base of the Radisson Hotel? Yes, perfect. Exactly. And, you, and you go into the Radisson Hotel and you got this six-story tall aquarium with yeah. an elevator going up it. Right. That's it's like wild. the triumph of capitalism, I <laughs> right. tell you. I sure. mean, it's capitalism in your face. And then you go downstairs and you've got this little museum talking about the humble niceties of life under the utopian uh, dictatorship of the proletariat. <laughs> sure. Check out the DDR Museum. And also, I was very impressed by the Film and TV Museum yes. in the Potsdamer Sony, Platz. Potsdamer Platz. Yeah, that's and a very cool museum. Sony Center? Exactly. That's right next to the Sony Center. Um, that's I didn't realize cool the German uh, cinema industry was such a big deal. Yeah, they have a very long history and a very proud history. And many people don't know that film was probably invented in Berlin as well, not just by the uh, Luminaire brothers in France. But there's actually a building in Prenzlauer that was demolished because of wartime destruction. And they now have a small little memorial that you'll miss if you walk by it. But it's at the tip of Castanian Alley. And you can see just their names printed in the cement. And then there's a sort of newsboard there that tells you this is partly where film was partly invented. And they were one of the inventors of movies. Exactly. And, and you think back, I mean, Metropolis. Right. Great exactly. film. Fritz Lang, definitely. And that was produced in Germany. Definitely. Marlena Dietrich. M as well. Marlena Dietrich was a huge film star. And then the museum also has this incredible look at TV history. And, you know, you could go to American TV and see right. uh, All in the Family or Ed Sullivan or right. who knows what. But they've got the same thing in Germany. Right. And TV in Germany originated, I was first used as a propaganda tool by the Nazis. Yes, very true, very true. In fact, just thinking about Joseph Goebbels and the propaganda ministry, oh. right? So. Oh, man. And then they've got this room where it's sort of like a kaleidoscopic sweep through German television history in 50 years in 20 minutes. Right. And you watch it, and it is great. It's a trip, definitely. This is fun to think of happy things in Berlin. Definitely, definitely. I think another good trip is a, a trip outside of Berlin to Potsdam. You can do the boat ride out there. Boat ride is great, too, on the river cruises. I know something fun, the zoo. Isn't there a famous... Uh, there's koala actually, bear or somebody there now? Yeah, well, not a koala bear, what but a, a tiny polar bear. Well, I shouldn't say he's not tiny anymore. His name is Knut. Really? Yeah. And he's sort of everybody's favorite bear right now. <laughs> exactly. Even though he was sort of abandoned by his mother, right? Then, of course, everybody felt bad for him. He became this huge attraction. There were lines two hours long to get in to see him. So for fun in Berlin, we've got Knut the polar bear. Definitely. We've got the DDR Museum. DDR Museum. We've got the TV Museum in the Sony Center. You bet. And, of course, obviously the parks when the weather's nice. And, and you've got Kneppa. Kneipen. Kneipen. Thank yes. you. Tell us about yes. Kneipen. Kneipen is the German word for bar or pub. And uh, every little neighborhood and corner has their local Kneipe. And you can go in there. You'll see the same people having the same beers every day. And um, it's a very sort of gemütlich atmosphere, right? Gemütlich. Cozy. We'll cozy. Do you have gemütlich in Berlin? Oh, yeah, definitely. Really? Because I think that has... was uniquely Bavarian. No, I think that you'll still hear that. I think that they recognize it as Bavarian, but at the same time, if you go into certain areas, you'll say, oh, that's very gemütlich. And they'll nod and they'll agree with you. Yes, yes, it is gemütlich. So that's the corner pub. And you get good food. Very, definitely. Very simple, good local food. Cheap, good food. Great beer. Great beer. Always great beer. Megan, have fun in Berlin. Thank you. Michael's on the phone in Berkeley, California. Hi. I'm glad you've turned to fun topics because I was going to feel guilty about asking a trivial question about a city with such unique history. Good. Um, some things you can do for fun. Go to the wrong train station. Buy lots of pastry. They're real comfort food after about a 12- or 14-hour plane ride. But ride the transit system. Um, this is the trivial question I was going to ask you. We found it just amazing. We went there with your guidebook last summer. Um, a real model for American transit systems. Once you've punched your two-hour ticket or your day pass, you can transfer to anything, including suburban trains, which was great for running around. We took your advice and looked at one of the ghost subway stations, which was one of the stations basically unchanged since the 30s because East Berlin, I guess, allowed trains to run through them but not stop during the Cold War. And the question is, parts of the U-Bahn, the, the subway that we saw, were quite slow and, and somewhat decrepit. And these suburban trains, the S-Bahn, flew. They were like from the space age or the, the 22nd century. And we're wondering why that was. Is, was the U-Bahn under East German control during the Cold War? Is that the history of this? Or? Huh. Well, the public transportation system in general was under control of the East German government. And that's why the West German government had to pay money to these Germans to be able to use these trains that passed through the ghost stations that you talked about. Whether or not, though, they were maintained um, is no longer a question just because after the fall of the wall, obviously the money that's gone into the public transport system has been great and they've rejuvenated. But keep in mind the, uh, the S-Bahn that you were talking about, the commuter train, its name is Schnellbahn, which literally means fast bahn or fast train. 
And that's the whole purpose of it is to zip through the city, hmm. um, whereas the U-Bahn is to function to stop at every place. Okay, so those are the puddle jumpers. And, and it's like the exactly. RER in Paris. Exactly. The Schnellbahn. I didn't realize that. Yeah. And to make clear about these uh, ghost stations, it's mm-hmm. so interesting that you had this uh, subway system, but of course during the Cold War you couldn't go from east to west. Some of the trains that function in the west dipped through the east. Exactly. And they still ran them, but they had guards stationed down there with all the cobwebs to yeah. make sure nobody would come or go through those stops when the western trains would nip into the east to get to another point in the west. Definitely. And then 1989, all of a sudden, everybody's traveling everywhere. Right. And why not just open up those stations? And they were like literally in a, they were in a time warp. And what I think is just kind of a bummer, I think it's, it's a fun idea to think about, is that these people that went on the trains during, obviously, the Cold War, what they would see is they'd pass through these stations and they'd see advertising from 1960 and 1961 just before the wall was built. The wall was built, obviously, August oh, 13th, yeah. 1961. And so you'd look out the it window and you'd there. see these armed guards and then advertising from 1960. And I thought that was wild. I thought they should have kept that. And that's the slice of Berlin a lot of people will miss if they don't uh, do some studying or have a local guide. Definitely. Michael, thanks for your call. Thanks for all the great tips. You bet. And Peter's on the phone in Seattle. Hi, Peter. Thanks for calling. Hi, thanks for taking my call. It was uh, great to have a chance to go to Germany six months ago. We tried to see a bunch of the sites you've talked about. We ended up staying in the uh, former East Berlin, uh, Prinzelberg. And I think it's a fabulous place to stay because it seems to be somewhat less developed or reconstructed than some of the other areas. Uh, I'd urge people to just wander and look and see what the locals are living. And the way I do that is I'm sort of an amateur photographer, so I frequently get up early in the morning to wander around. And there are just places that are unlike the U.S., and they make us realize that what we think is absolutely true isn't necessarily true. But the images that I came back with and the the buildings that are just about ready to be reconstructed and the little traces of the wall that used to be there – are sites that you can never really get unless you spend some time just wandering aimlessly without a plan. Boy, what a fascinating region. You're absolutely right, Peter. Uh, Nigel, it's Prince Lauerberg, is Exactly, right? that's correct. Prince Lauerberg. Prince Lauerberg. Tell, exactly. tell us the, the history of Prince Lauerberg just recently, because it has gone through several Definitely. changes. Definitely. Prince Lauerberg was considered, uh, if you could call it, the dissident neighborhood during East German times. Um, a lot of poets and artists lived in Prince Lauerberg in East Berlin during the division. And that fame sort of catapulted it to the front when the wall fell. First, there was Mitte, which means middle, which is right next to Prenzlberg. And then Prenzlberg was next. Um, and so a lot of the refurbishments that were going on took place in Prenzlberg. But what you said, I think, has a good point. There are plenty of spots within the neighborhood that still have that sort of rundown East German feel to it, by meaning the facades are falling apart right next to a building that's just been renovated. And so I think it's a fascinating contrast. And I remember going there right after the fall of the wall, and it was like another bizarre post-nuclear right. lunar world. It was just, <laughs> there was bohemian squatting on rusted out cans right. with their abstract art. Abandoned you know, buildings being abandoned taken over. buildings and just yeah. squatters. Definitely. And it was like a slash between a nightmare and a <laughs> fantasy, you know? And then those uh, artistic, edgy people, it starts uh, percolating and right. all of a sudden you got some restaurants and all of a sudden boutique hotels. Right. And all of a sudden the bohemians are having to move further away. Right. And, and that's more into Friedrichshain now, which so is the next the neighborhood new, over. The new Prince Lowe What's interesting for me is I remember when it was people were just so scary and off-putting to me and everything. And then all of a sudden, these people with the bizarre piercings and tattoos (laughs) and everything are now parents because it's been 10 or 15 years. So you see them with their little kids in strollers and they're setting up cute little uh, ice cream shops and, and they're actually coming around to being kind of boring Parents, just like she could say that, I guess. Yeah, (laughs) and uh, to see that, to see the edgy people become responsible parents with Mm -hmm. all that that entails, right, right there in the same neighborhood is quite fascinating. And I think it's very much encouraged in the sense that, um, in a way, they're staying in the neighborhood. Those people that unfortunately, obviously, can afford to stay, and I say unfortunately because it's become so popular that it's become a victim of its own fame, and prices have started to go up with rents. But you still will see these families that are hanging out, going to the parks, and you can tell that you can just look at them and go, "You guys were the freaks that were here in the eighties, and now you got kids in strollers." And you're worried about uh, security in the playground. (laughs) I've written my chapter on Berlin for 20 years, and it was a big chore to rework it. I finally had to be honest with myself. It's no longer Kurfürstendamm and and the Zoo Bahnhof. That was the West. And now Berlin is knitted back together. 
And as Peter's talking about, the most interesting place for the tourists to stay, I believe, is Prince Lauerberg, which was the east. Right. So us guidebook writers have to go find all new hotels and restaurants. Definitely. And it's a fun area. That's where I stayed with my last visit. It's just, uh, it just that's, wonderful. And that's actually where I live, and I'm for that very reason, because it is, I think, the most exciting neighborhood along with Kreuzberg. And there's that famous uh, Schnell Imbiss place then under the trolley. Exactly. Under the trolley. That's the most are. famous one with the famous curry voice. Oh, I love it. <laughs> and then a, a few blocks from there, you've got the best beer garden in town, I think. True, true. And that's uh, the oldest beer garden as well. It's about What's 200 it years old. Old. It starts with P. I don't know um, the, oh, Prater. Prater, that's yeah, right. Yeah, it's called the Prater, yeah. yeah. Peter, do you have any other memories yeah. or comments on that? Well, one other tip that I had. Um, I know in your guidebook there are times where day trips out of town by car seem reasonable, but i got to say that for those of us who don't speak German very well, driving in a foreign country without the language freaks us out. But I, I actually bought a one of those pocket GPS systems that speaks in English and actually has every corner, every alleyway of all of Germany, of all of Europe. And that gave me the confidence to get out of town, drive around, and even if you turn it off and get lost, you punch the button, it gets the satellite, and you can go back to the front door of your hotel without any fear of being completely lost. And I really think it's an invaluable tool when you decide you're going to be driving around. That sounds brilliant. A GPS system in English that works really well in Germany. Yep. I mean, they're a big craze. And the other thing is doing a little planning using the famous Google Earth to get a a photograph of the town and where these hotels are physically. Your guidebook tells us a lot about it, but getting a a satellite photo of the whole town and going down to the actual seeing people on the street is another invaluable tool of planning. You know, we've even used that in our guidebook work now because I see my map maker, Dave, checking our maps by just going on Google Earth, and you can literally see the building, and you see, oh, there's the entrance that's on this side now instead of that side. Yeah. Peter, thank you very much. You bet. Bern is on the phone from Haines, Alaska. Hi, Bern. Hi, Rick. I think I have an answer to the woman's question about fun. Oh, yeah. It's also something serious that you can do there in Berlin. When I was there, I went to puppet theaters, and there were many, actually. One was a repertory theater that had both adults and children's shows, and uh, it was really fascinating stuff. I actually was making a like a three-month trip of puppet theaters in Europe and discovered stuff that I had no conception existed. Could a non-German speaker enjoy a puppet show in Berlin? Absolutely. I saw one, there was one called the Figuren Zirkel, which was just silent shadow puppets to Mozart operas. Well, that's a very good tip. We're collecting happy ways to do Berlin. Yeah. There's also the Die Schaubude Theater. It's like a repertory theater that has several puppet shows from different troops and companies from all over Europe and other places several times a week. I mean, I almost considered that a good enough reason to move to Berlin. And they have the children's shows, the kinder shows in the afternoons. Bern, how would somebody find out about these, uh, the local entertainment magazines or what? Well, that is the whole problem. Yeah. <laughs> and I did a lot of research looking for puppet theaters. I just got curious about puppetry. I, I became a puppeteer after making this trip because it was so fascinating, especially in Eastern Europe. All right. Uh, no, that's that's the whole problem, is that it isn't very well known. It's and, not promoted go, to the tourists, probably, so that's the problem. It was just so fascinating. I realized coming back to America, nobody knew what I was talking about. They all think uh, children are Muppets. Okay, Bern, I think you've got a, a, a mission there. You need to write a guidebook to the great puppet theaters, uh, marionette theaters of Europe, okay? Okay. Okay, thanks for your call. Thank you. Bye now. Philip's on the line in Redwood City, California. Hi, Philip. Hello, Rick. How are you? Great. Thanks for calling. I'd like to mention something that's unusual, especially in this program for world travelers, which is the ITB International Trade Show that takes place in Berlin, um, usually the second weekend of every March. Huh. And that's a big trade show that why would the public care? First of all, that's um, open during the week for trades, but on the weekends, uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, they're open to the public. And I met you at a few of the travel shows. Like, I know that you've been to the ones in New York and uh, Long Beach, California, but um, the one in Berlin is about 20 to 30 times the size of the ones in, say, for example, uh, New York and California. Wow. Even if you're not going, it can clog the whole city from a hotel point of view, and all the prices are going to spike up, I bet. It does, but I did something unusual the last time I was there, which was I decided to stay in Poland, because nowadays, by train, Berlin is only an hour from Poland. That's true, definitely. And it really gives you an interesting perspective, not only on where you can go, but also how travel is sold. Um, One of the things is, you know, in spite of all the news that we're hearing, the thing that I thought that was kind of funny was um, Iran and Israel chasing the same tourist dollars in the same convention hall. 
Oh, that is interesting. And one of the persons that I talked to, I remember there was a um, English gentleman that was working for the Saudi Tourist Board, and I always wonder what he what he does all year. Tough to promote tourism to Saudi Arabia, I can imagine. Yeah. You, yes. Did you mention that you stay in Poland uh, because that you can get a cheaper hotel and you're just an hour commute to Berlin? Well, I did that just in part for fun. Well, that's a fun idea, though. And because I went to school near De- uh, in Detroit, so border towns has always fascinated me. So I wouldn't say that I went to Poland, but I got to see something interesting about the border. And one of the things that I noticed is that since Poland joined the EU, it seems like Berliners tend to smoke a little more heavily than <laughs> Germans in other cities because they have such ready access to cheap Polish cigarettes. That's, huh. that's quite true, actually. <laughs> yes. You'll see a lot of people just making a run for the border for the day when their car is or taking the regional train. Just to pick some cheap cigarettes. Cheap, cheap, cheap cigarettes and cheap alcohol. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's pretty. Now, what's the latest, by the way, for uh, smoke-free zones in restaurants and so on, is it? Well, right now there's a debate going on as to what to make smoke-free. And the problem is, is that the way the German government is structured, each federal state, or Bundesland as they call them, has the right to make its own decisions. And so although the federal government can say, this is what we want, we want smoke-free, it's really up to each state to promote it. And so that's still in the process right now. Okay. Uh, most of Europe is going pretty thoroughly smoke-free. Definitely. And hopefully Berlin will be like that soon. <laughs> Philip, thanks for your call. Thank you very much, Rick. Yep. Great to talk to you. Happy travels. Bye-bye. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking about Berlin with Nigel Mural. Nigel, when you think about Berlin, and I know you, you've chosen to live there, and mm-hmm. are you going to stay there? I don't think long-term. Uh, as much as we do love the city... I think being from California myself and my girlfriend being from Barcelona, I think we're sunshine kids at heart. <laughs> so uh, you, don't, you don't hang out in Berlin for the sunshine? <laughs> no, we don't. If you have one bit of information for somebody that wants to enjoy Berlin mm-hmm. on their visit. Mm-hmm. Well, the best thing would be to take a walking tour or to hire a guide. I think that really brings out all the secrets that Berlin has. And you're done with that as a career, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> you're not trying to push your own business. No, not at all. No, but I would fully agree on that because there's such a rich history, and you walk right by it, and you'd be completely oblivious. That's true. Very true. Berlin must have more history per, per cobble than any place I know in Europe. We've been learning about Berlin thanks to Nigel Mural, a former tour guide from Berlin, and now a man that just enjoys the wonders of that exciting and ever-changing city. Nigel, thanks very much. Thanks for having me, Rick. Sag mir adieu Frag nicht und geh Es tut mir weh Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online, including listener feedback and archived audio on demand. It's in the radio section of our website at ricksteves.com. Es tut mir weh. Wie dir. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines. New vacation options in Latin America, plus getaways in the U.S., Europe, and the Caribbean are at aavacations.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.